This episode of The Curbsiders is sponsored by the American College of Physicians. ACP is announcing its first National Internal Medicine Day on October 28th, and you can visit www.acponline.org forward slash I am proud for further details. Osteoarthritis globally is a huge problem, and the amount of money spent on managing musculoskeletal pain, for which OA and back pain are the leading causes, is um, more than cardiovascular disease, diabetes, and cancer combined. The Curbsiders Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. For more of the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those, and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like more hospital and affiliate outreach programs. If indeed there are any, in fact, there are none. Pretty much we are responsible if it's true. We should always do your own homework and let us know when we're ready. This episode of The Curbsiders is brought to you in partnership with the American College of Physicians. ACP members can claim free CME and mock credit at www.acponline.org forward slash curbsiders. Hey, Paul, do you think we should uh, start the show? Yeah, that, that feels right. All right. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to introduce our co-host in a second here. But uh, first, I'll tell you that tonight we are talking about osteoarthritis with returning guest, Dr. Tahina Nioji. She's a fantastic guest uh, who was who's famous for being on our gout episode. Actually, well, and exclusively that, exclu- <laughs> exclusively that. Uh, so, Paul, before we get too far into this, can you tell the audience uh, what we do on this show? Sure. Hello, audience. We are the Internal Medicine Podcast, and we use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. We also get to know our guests at the beginning of the show. Um, everyone swears that they don't skip past it, so maybe I'll even stop scolding at this point, but probably not. I th- I think so. I mean, I'm starting to get emails that say, like, stop scolding the audience, like, people listen, so. Are you really? Yeah. Yeah, the, the curbsiders oh, are getting the emails. So. I will continue the abuse. <laughs> yeah, no, please let me know, anyone who whines about that, and I'll just buck up is what I will tell them. Well, on this show tonight, we we go through the diagnosis of osteoarthritis, whether or not you need imaging. We talk about the pathophysiology, which I think most of you will that will find very interesting because it's count it's it's definitely not what I was taught in medical school and I think what is still widely believed about osteoarthritis. We talk about some of the, um, the the etiology of the pain in osteoarthritis, and of course, we go through uh, a bunch of different treatment modalities. We had a lot of questions from Twitter, um, and uh, I should I should introduce joining us tonight on tonight's show is a, a first time. She's been a many time writer, producer, artist on the show, but this is the first time being on air, and it is future uh, future physician Beth Garbatelli. Beth Hi, Garbs everyone. Garbatelli. Yes, yes, my my nickname Garbs. Right. So Beth, thank you for joining us on the show and thank you for putting together such great questions for for Dr. Neoji. Yeah, this was a fun topic to work on and one of personal interest because I have a very strong genetic predisposition for OA, so I'm getting ready for my hands to start <laughs> generating any minute now. Um, probably surgery's out for me because of that. So <laughs> Beth, did you want to give the audience a one-liner? Usually we let people give a one-liner the first time they're on on air on the show. Oh, shoot. I didn't even think about this before I was prepping. Um, Yeah, so I'm a medical student in my second year at Tufts University School of Medicine. Um, 
right now I'm in Boston, but I'm actually in Tufts um, main track. So I will be up in Maine for my uh, clinical years next year and fourth year. Um, I'm from Long Island slash Vermont. We moved to Vermont when I was 12. Um, I'm a huge Yankees fan, a big baker, um, and I love medicine. Well, thank you for joining us on the show. Paul Paul's going to tell us about the guests because we definitely uh we we definitely have a lot of great stuff ahead for the audience. Yep, thanks Matt. We are lucky to have Dr. Tahina Nioji back again. Uh as a reminder, Dr. Nioji is a chief of rheumatology and a professor of medicine at Boston University School of Medicine. She's also um in case that weren't enough, a professor of epidemiology at the Boston University School of Public Health. Dr. Neoji's research focuses on knee osteoarthritis and gout, pain mechanisms in osteoarthritis, and methodologic issues in rheumatic disease. Dr. Neoji is a recipient of the prestigious Henry Kunkel Young Investigator Award from the American College of Rheumatology, the Young Investigator Award from the Osteoarthritis Research Society International, and the Robert Dawson Evans Research Mentoring Award from Boston University School of Medicine's Department of Medicine. She also leads the CTSI's Research Career Support Program. Dr. Neoji serves on a number of national and international committees and organizations, including uh, treatment guideline and FDA committees. She is um, one of the primary drivers of the current uh, national guidelines for the treatment of osteoarthritis by the ACR, as well as I believe the gout guidelines, if I'm not mistaken. So we are extraordinarily fortunate to have her expertise with us as we talk about osteoarthritis. Beth, do you have a pun? No puns. I'm sorry. I'm punless. Don't apologize. This is the single greatest episode. <laughs> <laughs> Tahina, I want to start off. I'm going to give you the option um, to to remind the audience about yourself. Uh, you, it's been I don't know eighty some episodes, probably or seventy some episodes since you were last on. So, can you please remind the audience who you are and uh, what you're into? Sure. Thank you uh, for inviting me back. Um, so, I'm a rheumatologist and epidemiologist at Boston University School of Medicine and at the School of Public Health, and. Uh, I do clinical research in osteoarthritis and gout primarily. As for my personal life, I enjoy music and going to a lot of concerts, um, reading, and I know you were asking about if I have any recommendations. I don't have any highbrow recommendations, but the last book I finished was a Joe Nesbo mystery. I think it was The Phantom, which I quite enjoyed. He's a popular mystery novelist, um, Norwegian from uh so a lot of the stories are set in in Norway but some are set in other countries as well one of our one of our mentors uncle bob centaur he recommended reading mystery books because as an internist he told us we should think of ourselves as sort of like detectives when we're being a diagnostician so i think the the mystery works well for for internists Absolutely. And same for rheumatologists. I feel that we are the, um, you know, the detectives of internal medicine. When no one can figure it out, they call rheumatology. That's 100% true. Yeah. Rheumatology and infectious disease get all the, I just, I need someone smarter than me right now, please. <laughs> and Joe Nesbo, he's the guy, he he wrote the novel, The Snowman, that the, yes. the disastrous movie is based upon. <laughs> Oh, yeah. oh, is there a movie about it? There, you you should. I, it's a fascinating movie to watch because it is just so astoundingly bad. Even though it's a lot of great people are involved in it, but there's yeah, there's a horrific movie um, for all the wrong reasons. If you ever find some free time on a, on a Saturday, I, wow, it's probably worth a watch. I'm told that the books are spectacular. The movie is not. <laughs> Hate when that happens. <laughs> Beth, did you have any questions for Tahina? Um, 
I would love to hear about any um, moments of awakening related to being a woman in medicine that you've experienced recently. Well, I um, have been fortunate enough to become chief of rheumatology at my institution. And as a young looking female, uh, visible minority, I'm in the minority of being a chief of a section. Um, earlier this year, we had a implicit bias training workshop, bias reduction in medicine. And it was a three-hour workshop led by a sociologist who whose research is in implicit bias. I had to leave the session a little bit early, as did a couple of my colleagues. And the person leading the session turned to one of my colleagues remaining in the room and asked if the seat that was previously occupied by a certain individual was the section chief. And it turns out that seat had been previously occupied by the oldest Caucasian male in the room. So making the assumptions that we were just spending three hours talking about not making. It'll, it, we'll eventually get there. It's, it's, it's yeah. kind of shocking though. <laughs> Oh man, pun intended. <laughs> yeah, I think as as painful as those stories are to hear, I think just hearing them over and over again just kind of underscores that there's still a long way to go. So it's always, even though it's awful that it's happened, it's helpful to hear about it. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah, well, we all had a laugh about it. Well, I'm so glad that you are the chief of rheumatology. That's fantastic. Uh, we t on a recent show, uh, the Dr. Jagsy was talking about mm. um, the, one of our women in medicine shows was talking about you know the the chairs and department chairs and chiefs you know they they need to get that percentage up the percentage of women is low it's something like sixteen percent so yeah absolutely and she's done amazing research in this area and is really a role model nationally uh, for bringing attention to these issues. Well, Paul, to follow that up, I mean, I, I'm sure you've got a great pick of the week for the audience that <laughs> <laughs> there's no way to easily segue to it. Sure. Yeah, no, that was that was really nicely done. Um, so I'm going to go from one uncomfortable topic to another. I'm going to recommend um, the movie Midsummer, uh, the Ari Aster movie that is oh, out. God. I just happened to see the, the director's cut last week, and it was spectacular. So in case you don't know, Ari Aster is the wunderkind. He directed the movie Hereditary, which is... I think one of the most difficult movies I ever sat through, like it was extraordinarily well done, but it gave me a tummy ache and hereditary. I similar. So he directs horror movies, but he directs horror movies about people who are sort of processing trauma. I think Midsummer is actually kind of a relationship movie. Um, the long, and the short of it is this group of um, young adults go to, uh, I want to say Sweden for a, a, a ritual in a small village and things get dark, but it's, it's an incredibly controlled movie. Like the, the shooting, it reminds me of like, you know, like Wes Anderson, do you know Wes Anderson movies like the, the Grand Budapest Hotel or um, sure. like he's, he's very famous for sort of framing these almost very picturesque shots. It's like uh, Wes Anderson directing nightmares is kind of Ari Aster. It's just, everything's very beautiful and framed perfectly. And then he talks about these horrible um, kind of traumatic things, but it's, it's again, I just need someone else to watch it so that I can talk about it with them. So if anyone would like to watch Midsummer for me, I, I would certainly appreciate it. Well, I watched it without knowing anything about it, so I'm oh, happy perfect. to chat with you offline. But I, I was kind of dumbfounded by <laughs> what I was experiencing because I was not expecting that. Yeah, it's I, 
Yeah, we'll, 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 I could do this for an hour and a half, so that's probably a terrible idea. But yeah, we should. <laughs> we'll talk afterwards. Well, I'm glad, Tahina, I'm glad you saw it because, Paul, I will not be watching that movie. I, yeah, I, I really. I will also not be watching that movie. <laughs> the trailers alone had me like very freaked out. <laughs> It's. I found it. I found it weirdly optimistic, and I'll let it go at that. I don't want to ruin the end for anyone, but it's. Um, it's not for the faint of heart, for sure. Beth, I want to give you a chance. It's your first time on the show. What do you have? Picks of the week for the audience. Yeah. So my, I have two picks of the week. Um, one's a film, and one's an activity. And my film is sort of like the complete opposite of Midsummer, <laughs> um, in that it's incredibly heartwarming and life affirming, and not about a cult at all. Although I guess in some ways, those of us who love Mister Rogers' Neighborhood is kind of a cult, but a, a really nice one. Um, so I, re- I want to recommend "Won't You Be My Neighbor," um, which is a documentary that came out. I believe last year, but I only recently saw it a few weeks ago. Um, And it's so moving. And it's just about uh, the story of Mr. Fred Rogers and sort of where he came from and what informed the show. And I really, really enjoyed it. Um, And it's a great thing to watch at the end of the week. If you've had a long week, it'll, you know, you might shed some tears, but they'll be happy tears. Um, and then in terms of the activity I wanted to recommend, um, as an avid baker myself, I wanted to recommend to everybody when this airs, I'm sure it'll be very deep in the fall. Um, I wanted to recommend some fall baking since it's such an easy, nice, relaxing thing to do. And it's a great way to use up like apples or whatever, you know, fruit you have around. Um, and surprisingly it's easier than you would expect. So I, I always tell people who are new to baking to try doing like a cobbler because you really can't mess it up. It'll come out great and it will taste great and you will feel so satisfied in having baked something delicious. And Beth, are there any resources that you might plug or recommend any place that someone would go online and sort of investigate baking? You Perhaps could, done. <laughs> you could look at my food blog at Vermont Kitchen. <laughs> there we go. Thank you. But really, in terms of other food resources, I love Serious Eats. Like they have such great recipes, and they have this really awesome, like pastry wizard Stella Parks. Um, she goes by Brave Tart on Instagram, and she. Her recipes are foolproof. Um, they really test everything on Serious Eats, and I love that it's not behind a paywall, so you know you don't have to have a subscription or something. They just have really great tested recipes that will work for you. You're too generous. Say the name of yours again. Uh, mine's at Vermont Kitchen. <laughs> there we go. Well, to transition us to the topic, Paul, my pick of the week is once again a jump rope. Hannah, uh, the, <laughs> <laughs> the uh, first of all, we, we're going to be talking about physical activity as part of the treatment for osteoarthritis. And uh, the great uh-huh. the great Hannah R. Abrams uh, bought me a jump rope, I don't know why, as a birthday present, but she's just that fantastic. And uh, I've been using it. And by the time this airs, I've been using it for about two months now. And uh, it's been fantastic. So thank you, Hannah. And everybody, get yourself a jump rope. Get out there. You, you got to do it. So just to be clear... This is the thing with two handles and a piece of rope in between? <laughs> well, it's usually a cord. Okay. Yeah. And just and just for my education, and then we can move on. I'm, forgive me, Dr. Nyoji. Um, what, what, what constitutes a good jump rope as opposed to a bad jump rope? Well, How would you, I know the difference as a you, consumer? You want it to have some ball bearings, and it should have something like that implies it's really fast in the title. Like, you know... <laughs> <laughs> I think this one's called like a ballistic speed rope or something Oof. like that. So, okay. Yeah. All right. Great tips. Thank you. I think Beth has a case from Cashlack Memorial Hospital 
Tahina, she'll be reading it to you, and then then we're gonna just gonna ask you like thousands of questions about osteoarthritis. Okay. So I know in the tradition of curbsiders, we do a great job of using punny names for our patients that sort of tie in. And I'm apologizing uh, outright for not having one for these cases as I was studying for renal. Um, <laughs> so I, apo- I apologize for our nameless patient, but we're taking HIPAA very seriously for this episode. I think um, you're now Paul's favorite person. <laughs> <laughs> the best case I've ever read. <laughs> So our patient is a 67-year-old female. She presents with persistent aches and pains, especially in her hands. She also describes lower back pain and some stiffness in her legs. She felt this might be part of normal aging and has been controlling the pain with naproxen and rest, but notes that she thinks the pain is getting worse. She describes how she used to be quite active, but has had to slow down due to pain from exercising, and this has caused her to gain weight over the last few years. She has a BMI of 27 and a family history of heart disease. So I guess we could start with sort of what, um, if a patient like this comes into the clinic, what's what's the initial you know physical exam you want to go through, history you want to go through to make sure that this is, you know, OA um, versus rheumatoid arthritis or just, you know, normal aches and pains with aging? Sure. So... Um... The description of aches and pains in the hands, some back pain, some stiffness in the legs, there's nothing very specific there. So I think the key, one of the key uh, aspects of diagnosing osteoarthritis is getting a really good history. So I would start with really understanding where the symptoms are, having them point to the body parts, having them describe what activities uh, bring on the symptoms, if any activities bring on the symptoms versus whether or not the symptoms are there persistently, regardless of activity. Um, this is a 67-year-old woman. And so other than the back pain, having complaints in the hands and legs um, should still bring up a broad differential, including inflammatory arthritis, such as rheumatoid arthritis. And so you you would want to find out about any inflammatory symptoms, such as you know, classically we ask about morning stiffness. Um, joint swelling, um, pain improving with use of the joint, uh, etc. And so, you know, getting at um, some of those will help understand whether or not these are articular symptoms versus more widespread pain that may be non-articular. So, you know, fibromyalgia is something that can also present with multiple body parts that are symptomatic. the otherwise the history that she gives about not being able to exercise due to pain and weight gain that's also not very specific for a particular type of arthritis or even musculoskeletal condition um, since for many patients they feel that the pain is preventing them from being active Tahina, this case has a lot has a lot going on is there like a classic just like someone walks in and like a classic history or exam that just like screams to me okay this is this is osteoarthritis i don't need imaging i don't need any further workup this is this is what this is what would that be what would that right. sound like so um if you gain an, gain a story from her re- uh, regarding her symptoms that indicate for example for the legs that the pain is in the knees or in the hips um or you know first mtp something like that where it is really um, at least starts with the pain being with weight-bearing activities. 
So for the knee, for example, pain with walking for a while or climbing stairs or people who are more active, um, pain with jogging, skiing, tennis, things like that, where there's more um, load bearing in the joint, that would be more consistent with a mechanically driven disease like osteoarthritis, um, as opposed to a description of an hour of morning stiffness, joint swelling, um, things getting better as a joint is moving. Um, and so those are some of the classic differentiators. Um, the physical exam, not finding the typical joint distribution of an inflammatory polyarthritis, such as the small joints of the hands and feet. Um, now, with osteoarthritis, the small joints can be affected, but we wouldn't expect the same type of joint effusions that we would see in rheumatoid arthritis. Osteoarthritis classically involves the DIPs, but so the distal interphalangeal joints, but can also involve um, some of the other hand joints. But the um, distal interphalangeal joints and the first CMC, or the base of the thumb, are the classic um, areas of the hand that uh, are, are typically affected. So you're saying that uh, inflammatory arthritis, morning stiffness, and we usually set the cutoff around 30 minutes. Uh, I know some people sometimes raise it to an hour, and you're saying if they get better with with activity, that's suspicious for an inflammatory arthritis because osteoarthritis generally they're they're worse with with any activities they're doing with the affected joint. Usually correct, and yes, the you know standard uh, cutoff is 30 minutes now people with osteoarthritis can have some stiffness in the morning and they can have a gelling phenomenon but it's usually not prolonged you had asked about imaging and so i just wanted to come back to that point For, to make a diagnosis of osteoarthritis you don't need any imaging and patients are often will ask their physician well don't i need an x-ray don't i need an mri or something like that but really osteoarthritis the diagnosis can be made on the basis of history and physical exam alone. The only reason to get blood tests or imaging is if another thing on the differential diagnosis can't be ruled out on the basis of history and physical exam. And so in those cases, you would be obtaining blood work to rule out, for example, an inflammatory arthritis. Um, you'd get be getting imaging to rule out something else. But honestly, plain film x-rays are not necessarily going to rule out anything else for someone who's had a short course of symptoms. And radiographs are insensitive to the earliest stages of osteoarthritis. In addition, there's a so-called structure symptom discordance in osteoarthritis, wherein some people have a lot of symptoms and very little to show for it on the x-rays, or the x-rays look terrible and they don't have very many symptoms. So for you know, all of these reasons, there is no compelling reason for obtaining imaging uh, to make a diagnosis of osteoarthritis. Yeah, the the whole imaging discordance thing, I, we know it exists for, for the spine. And, and then uh, as I was reading for this, for, for knees, like it's, it's pretty, yeah, or for knees or just osteoarthritis in general, you're even if the knee looks bad on the x-ray, like some of those people have no pain, which is just kind of drives us crazy. Cause every, I guess we've talked about this with other things, like people trying to check procalcitonin for infections. Like we just want a test that just tells us like, is this, <laughs> is it this or not? Right. Well, I'm going to get a little nerdy here. And, um, 
so as an epidemiologist, I really thought about this question a lot. And um, 10 years ago, I published in BMJ a little study that I did taking the perspective of an epidemiologist where I'm trying to understand, you know, why is there this discordance? And in thinking about the studies that have been done, you know, the the way in which to look at the relationship between structure and symptoms is to make sure that you've accounted for all potential confounders for things that cause people to experience pain differently, all those between-person differences. So as an example, if I were to punch you, and if I were to, sorry, if I were to punch you, Matthew, and if I were to punch you, Beth, um, you would experience that differently, even if I punched you both with the same force. So what are those differences between people that um, make up the, you know, total pain experience? And so what I did was I took people who, uh, I studied people who had pain in one knee, but no pain in the other knee. And so in that way, any differences in the experience of pain in the given knee should be due to differences at the knee and not, you know, psychological makeup, genetics, et cetera, et cetera. And in doing that, I was able to demonstrate a very strong relationship between structure and symptoms. So what it points to points out or what it highlights is the fact that, yes, structure does contribute to symptoms. And you have to really account for all potential confounders, all those between-person differences that contribute to the pain experience to see that signal. And so it highlights that pain is very multifactorial and structure is only but one component of that pain experience for someone with any condition that can be painful. So I guess I just want to recap just because there are a lot of questions um, from social media about the role of imaging and, and diagnosing and treating, well, not treating, but I guess managing. Um, so just so I'm fully understanding, you don't need imaging to actually make a diagnosis. There are clinical criteria in history. Um, an exam can should be enough a lot of the times. If the presentation is somewhat atypical, that might indicate a role for imaging, and that should start with plain film. And then I think I think I was reading the, the ULAR recommendations. If you have sort of rapid progression of symptoms, that also might be an indication, but otherwise there's no real um, reason to get imaging if you have a good story and a good exam that goes along with osteoarthritis. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I would say that, yes, that if the symptoms are typical and if the course is typical, then there's no need for imaging. Now, there could be, you know, some rare instances, um, such as with rapidly progressive OA, there might be underlying osteonecrosis or some other things that might need different management. But for the vast majority of individuals who are having a typical symptom pattern and course, imaging is not needed. Now, you have to put this into context. There are 300, over 300 million people worldwide who have osteoarthritis, 30 million people in the US, 10 to 15% of populations around the world. So if you're thinking about imaging, that's a lot of people you'd have to image just to find these very few instances of something that may be more atypical. And the vast majority of individuals are having typical symptoms and typical courses. I want to ask about the the physical exam specifically. So some things that I had read about, you, you look for crepitus, you look for sort of pain throughout the range of motion or restricted range of motion. And uh, I guess joint line tenderness or bony enlargement. Is there anything else that that you look for, or can you can you kind of tell us how you would? Let's just start with the knee, since that's the most common. Like what 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 do you look for if anything else besides the list I kind of just rattled off there? Yeah, so all of those things that you uh, rattled off are appropriate um, physical exam uh, approaches. I also look at alignment at the knee. 
So um, while they're standing and supine, I also observe them while walking to look to see if they have any thrust in the knee, either, you know, what we say, varus or valgus thrust. So is the knee um, sort of bowing inwards or outwards as they're walking? Because that indicates some um, dynamic um, changes in their alignment that could have um, important biomechanical implications. Um, I do look for knee effusions because, in you know, we have traditionally called osteoarthritis a, a non-inflammatory arthritis, but that is really a misnomer. Um, if you do appropriate uh, physical exam, you will often find small effusions in people with knee osteoarthritis. You can often obtain synovial fluid from uh, people with oster knee osteoarthritis. And in research studies where MRIs are used, there's a high prevalence of synovitis and effusion on MRIs. So osteoarthritis is not a non-inflammatory arthritis. It's just not as inflammatory as some of the other traditionally considered inflammatory arthritic conditions. And the pathology of that inflammation of the inflammatory tissue is very similar to RA, just to a much, much lesser extent. Um, so uh, in addition to alignment and effusion, um, I also look for instability. Well, I, I, I elicit a history of whether or not there's any um, knee buckling, locking, et cetera. And I um, do tests uh, on physical exam maneuvers to try to elicit um, any uh, concerns about instability, um, meniscal uh, injury, ACL injury in the history it would also point to a high, higher risk of osteoarthritis at a younger age. Um, I also look at um, the joint above and the joints below because um, Knee osteoarthritis isn't necessarily going to be the only um, joint of, of, uh, involved. So the hip, the ankle, the foot. I also look at foot alignment. You know, are they, um, do they have flat feet? Are they sort of pronated? Because um, all of those things can also impact the biomechanics. Love it. I might be taking this a little bit out of order here, but I, I did want to ask um, actually, speaking to us as an from an epidemiologic standpoint, who who kind of gets osteoarthritis? Who is what is the phenotype that sort of most typically presents, or can you even categorize that? So, for an instance, in our patient's case, someone in their in their sixties who is a BMI would qualify as being overweight. Are there certain characteristics of patients that make uh, osteoarthritis more suspicious than than other, I guess, joint pathologies? Sure. So, um, you know, just stepping back to what I said a bit earlier. 10 to 15% of adult populations have symptomatic osteoarthritis. So it's a substantial proportion. Um, the risk factors include higher, you know, increasing age, female sex, obesity. Um, so her BMI is 27. Um, you know, at my institution, we often see BMIs above 35 and even above 40. Yeah. Um, um, history of knee injury is, so as I was mentioning, meniscus, ACL, et cetera, that's also a major risk factor. Um, there are some uh, genetic associations that have been, uh, that have been um, identified in genetic uh, genome-wide association studies. Um, there's um, other biomechanical things such as leg length discrepancy, um, you know, if you have uh, a pre-existing joint damage due to other things, for example, rheumatoid arthritis, that joint will be more predisposed to having osteoarthritis. Um, and then there are a whole host of other 
uh, potential risk factors that have been studied epidemiologically, but uh, none that have definitively um, been demonstrated you know, across the board or um, have had intervention trials targeting those risk factors showing uh, a benefit. So there's still a lot to learn in osteoarthritis. I want to I want to ask you a little bit about you you sort of hinted to it here. Can you tell us what are we what are we understanding now because this is this is a big thing and and maybe you could tell us about how you would explain it to a patient. So what what's like let's say we were going to diagnose our 67-year-old female here without a name which I'm very disappointed about Beth, but um, <laughs> let's say we were going to diagnose her with osteoarthritis. How might what might you explain to her what is that and and what causes it and maybe kind of put in terms that we could then repeat to our patients in clinic tomorrow uh when we're seeing them. Right. So I think first um is addressing some misconceptions about osteoarthritis. It's not just a disease of wear and tear. It's not just something that happens naturally with aging. Um, I think there is this conception that it's a part of normal aging, and it it's not. It is a disease, and the it's largely biomechanically driven, um, um, where wherein the catabolic activity in the joint is. Um, outpacing the anabolic or sort of healing mechanisms in the joint so that, um, you know, whatever the inciting event may be, there are a whole host of um, molecular um, pathways that are activated that can lead to um, degradation of cartilage, bone marrow lesions, synovitis and effusion. Um, you know, so a whole host of things that can be occurring that um, for which the anabolic mechanisms can't keep up. And that it, that manifests itself then as um, joint space narrowing, which we can see on imaging, which at a tissue level is loss of cartilage, is um, minuscule extrusion or um, uh, you know tears. There's also um, bone shape changes. And um, so those can also... Uh, result in apparent joint space narrowing, the um, development of more prominent, uh, more bony prominence is related to osteophyte formation, which is one of the um, biologic responses of hypertrophic chondrocytes. They, they undergo endochondral ossification and, and develop osteophytes. So there's you know a whole host of things that are going on at the joint level. So this is not just a disease of cartilage. It's not just a disease of cartilage and bone. It's a disease of the whole joint. And I think if we were to name this disease today, this would be like total joint failure. So, you know, just like we talk about congestive heart failure or renal failure, this is not a single tissue. It is a, you know, whole organ failure. There's there's two articles written by a doctor, um, let me... Let me just it's a doctor DJ Hunter from Australia. One's a it's a seminar paper in Lancet 2019 and figure 2 in that has like a really great summary of what you were just talking about, kind of a picture of like the synovium, the cartilage and the bone and all these sort of inflammatory changes and remodeling changes that are going on and and as you said total joint failure which yeah. is just uh it's not it's not the way that it was taught. Uh, when I was in medical school. So it's right, right. 
Um, well, I'm glad you gave DJ a shout out because he's a friend of mine and we used to work together. Um, yeah, so uh, the osteoarthritis research community is, um, you know, very well attuned to this way of thinking, but it hasn't really um, been taken up by the sort of larger medical community. Well, I think this is going to help. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a little bit encouraging. I, I, I know I keep driving this out of order, but if you, because I feel like if you view it as wear and tear, then progression is kind of inevitability. If you're talking about it in terms of inflammation and molecular targets, then you're then you're looking at ways you can actually maybe even modify progression of disease. Or is presumably that's something that's being looked at? Or are there things coming down the pike that actually can help modify the the natural history? Yeah, absolutely. So. Um, as you know, there are currently no treatments on the market that are proven to alter the structural progression or prevent the disease. Um, so really, um, our approaches to OA management are to try to um, ameliorate symptoms and hopefully prevent progression by addressing things like um, joint protection, uh, reducing weight, being physically active, etc. But given the you know, uh, uh, vast amounts of uh, information being understood about OA pathophysiology. There are a whole host of um, targets that are um, being tested, and even currently in um, you know phase one, two, and three trials, um, targeting various um, molecular mechanisms in osteoarthritis. Um, and in addition to the structural targets, there are also unique pain targets. And, you know, I think one of the challenges in osteoarthritis is that it is a, a slowly progressive disease. And so if you are targeting a single mechanism to demonstrate symptom benefit, it could potentially take a long time. So that's one of the challenges trials have been facing to date is how do you show the direct link between structural improvement and symptomatic benefit if there's a lag between the two. But it is an exciting time for osteoarthritis because there are a lot of uh, promising targets that are being developed. You think we're looking at kind of both preventive agents and disease modifying agents for osteoarthritis in the future? Is there a future 10 years from now where maybe that that will be the case? Yeah, I think so. I think many of the targets would be suitable both for treating structural abnormalities and preventing. And some of them would make more sense to institute at an earlier phase before you have this whole cascade and you've gone beyond the point of no sure. return. And I think some others, um, there are challenges because, you know, to expect a single molecular target to overcome someone's BMI of 47, going through that joint is a lot to ask for, a, you know, poor little molecular target. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, so I think we have a lot of uh, work that we need to do with our patients. And I think just, you know, generally society as a whole, because right. this isn't just about osteoarthritis. Um, you, you know, I've done some work with some colleagues where, you know, really thinking on a societal level and social determinants of health is where we need to be because um, the weight and knee injury issues that might be occurring in childhood and adolescence is, is you know, something that by the time they come to see us in their 60s is probably, you know, too far out the gate. Right. And you bring those up because as of right now, I mean, those are the two thing, two preventive measures, right? Preventing joint injuries and then preventing 
you know, weight weight gain to the point where the joint is loaded um, excessively. Those as as of right now, as far as I know, those are the only two preventive measures we have. Yes, yeah, those would those are the ones that are best supported by evidence. Yes, I, I think we should move on and talk a little bit about uh, pain, and then that will I think naturally bring us into how the treatment's done. What What is the, the model that you use to think about how pain is caused in osteoarthritis? And is it all nociceptive pain, or do you believe that there's other types of pain mixed in there as well? Yeah, so this is a very hot topic in osteoarthritis. Um, what I would say is that without the peripheral pathology, the, you know, the actual pathology of osteoarthritis, we wouldn't have the disease the, the symptomatic, um, uh, you know, the symptomatic expression of that disease. So there has to be some role of nociceptive input. And in research settings, MRIs have demonstrated that bone marrow lesions and synovitis effusion are among the most um, consistently associated pathologic features with pain. But beyond that, um, there is a point where that ongoing peripheral nociceptive drive likely leads to peripheral sensitization and or central sensitization, wherein the ascending nociceptive signals are facilitated. So they're either um, the nociceptors are res- responding to things that to signals that they normally wouldn't be responding to stimuli that may be non-noxious, um, or they are just firing more than they should be. And so the signaling going up to the brain may be uh, augmented. And so, um, there, I think it's, we don't have any clinical tools at, at present to be able to really understand what pain mechanisms are at play in a given individual. Um, There are some research tools, and we've demonstrated that people who have evidence of pain uh, pain sensitization, either peripherally or centrally, have more pain severity. They also tend to do worse after joint replacement, and um, they are more likely to be the ones that transition from having intermittent activity-related pain to more persistent pain that's there regardless of what activity they're doing. Is that how you identify them clinically, like patients that they they have pain like out of proportion to what you'd expect based on their joint damage and they have pain at times when they're not even active? Yeah. So I, um, you know, it, as I said, we don't have bedside tools that can help us really figure out these, the mechanism uh, behind someone's pain. Okay. So I do a really comprehensive evaluation of things like their sleep, their mood, um, you know, do they have widespread pain? Are they having um, pain in non-articular areas? Do they have a lot of tender points? You know, so is there like a fibromyalgia component? Um, And I I also think that there's a concept of stage of pain that's distinct from, or could be distinct from stage of pathologic disease. And so, you know, there someone could have the same level of pathologic disease, but one person is sensitized and the other person is not, and that might be why they have more pain severity. And as the peripheral nociceptive drivers remain, some for some people that sensitization um, may be occurring earlier than others. Some people might have predisposition to be sensitized. We don't know enough yet about why 
some people experience more pain than others um, in relation to why some people are sensitized, uh, you know, develop pain sensitization, and also how to figure out what are all of these other contributors to their pain, such as, um, as I was mentioning, depressive symptoms, poor sleep, um, people who have, who are pain catastrophizers and have poor coping skills. So there's a whole host of things that we have to take into account. And this is not just in osteoarthritis. This is in any pain condition, uh, even though we're not talking about rheumatoid arthritis today, but I'll just say that sometimes with the treat to target approach to rheumatoid arthritis treatment, that if you, you know, if they have a high disease activity, we need to up their DMARDs, continue to increase the dose until we get the disease under control. Well, if a large part of the disease activity seems to be pain and articular pain and not much swelling, some of that might be pain sensitization and we shouldn't be pushing the DMARDs. We should be trying to figure out what other aspects are contributing to their pain. We did a pain episode on back pain a long while back, and we talked about these yellow flags. And some of those were, you know, people coming in, uh, people that could catastrophize their pain, people that have a history of like just failing multiple therapies already. And it, it, you're, it seems like you're kind of hitting on some of these same things here as you're as you're talking about this. So the so it's kind of like it. You got to take in the, into account the whole patient, not just what's what's going on at the joint because, uh, and, and that's going to come into the, the treatments that we're going to talk about here. So the first question I want to just ask is, uh, the, the, there was 2012 guidelines from the American College of Rheumatology, and they talked about knee, hip, or knee, hand, and hip osteoarthritis because those are the three most common types from my understanding. So what, what modalities should pretty much everybody be getting if they have those things? And then we can talk about, we have a lot of questions about some of the fringe therapies um, as well. So what's, what's kind of like should be the main armamentarium of treatment for the three main types, knee, hand, and hip? Sure. So um, just for full disclosure, I'm in the uh, steering committee leading the update for the ACR treatment guidelines. So you can have me back when they're published. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm going to stick with what has been um, published. So the mainstays of uh, OA management, regardless of which joint site, is um, education about the disease, self-management, um, exercise, weight loss, physical therapy. For hand, occupational therapy may be appropriate as well. So you know, largely um, addressing biomechanical aspects of the disease. I should mention that obesity, you know, it has an association with, for example, hand away. And so there is also a thought that there's systemic effects of circulating adipokines, et cetera, that could be contributing to pain as well. Um, so, you know, patients, as you know, patients often want to have a pill um, to, to manage their diseases, their complaints. So a challenge with osteoarthritis is really having the patient understand that a lot of the management of osteoarthritis is things that they need to do themselves. And I often will, you know, write a prescription. I send them to weight and nutrition management. Um, and this morning on NPR, there was actually a really nice segment um, from the Osteoarthritis Action Alliance talking about exercise. And for many patients, they think you're crazy. I'm in pain, and now you want me to start an exercise program. Well, 
you know, I don't even talk about the word exercise. I just start by talking about walking um, because they don't need to do high impact uh, aerobics and not your blazing jump rope or whatever you were uh, mentioning earlier. It was a ballistic um, jump rope. Oh, sorry, ballistic. Okay. <laughs> so um, hoping for a sponsorship. <laughs> so, you know, anyone should be able to start a walking regimen. And trials have shown that, um, you know, simple, uh, walking programs with some strength training actually does have a very meaningful improvement in pain. Um, I think one, one of the challenges is how do we help someone start that walking program when they're currently in pain? So I spend a lot of my time just on walking and weight loss, uh, nutrition, et cetera, as one of the first mainstays. If a joint like the knee or the hand is, um, is symptomatic, we might start with something topical like topical NSAIDs or topical capsaicin. And topical capsaicin, um, you know, capsaicin is the active ingredient in hot chili peppers. So if you've, if you've ever eaten a hot chili pepper, it burns your mouth, it burns your tongue. And that burning sensation is like I explain it to patients, it's like it's drawing out the pain chemicals from your nerve terminals. And once those pain chemicals are drawn out of your nerve terminals, then you get some numbness, then you get like pain, you know, sort of pain relief. So it has to be applied multiple times. So topical capsaicin has some downsides in that it can cause some burning on the skin, has to be applied multiple times, but um, at least helps avoid needing systemic therapy. And tell them not to rub their eyes, right? <laughs> exactly. Wash <laughs> your genitals. hands immediately. <laughs> yes. Um, you know, acetaminophen has been um, considered sort of, a, you know, first-line therapy. Um, Osteoarthritis Research Society International has recently published um, treatment guidelines. Um, and there's been a, a number of meta-analyses demonstrating that acetaminophen has really minimal uh, efficacy. But, you know, we have a lot of patients who cannot take NSAIDs. And so I still think it's reasonable to try acetaminophen. Um, but, uh, you know, sort of knowing that the efficacy is likely to be limited. Um, but I also try to be positive for our, for my patients, um, without crossing the line to, uh, being unethical and lying, but I do <laughs> like to give them hope. Um, and this is like a, you know, probably a podcast for another day where, you know, I think we need to harness the placebo effect and particularly for diseases where we don't have a lot um, of um, easy options. I think provider communication and that therapeutic alliance is really important to harness. Um, so moving on to oral NSAIDs, um, you know, a lot of our patients are older. They have cardiovascular disease, as I think your case one had some family history of cardiovascular disease or something like that. They have renal issues. They have GI issues. So um, NSAIDs, oral NSAIDs can be challenging. Um, uh, rheumatologists um, often use intraarticular steroid injections. Um, there's, you know, some uh, controversy about its efficacy in light of a trial that was published in JAMA in 2017. Um, but other trials have shown short-term benefit, um, whereas that trial did not show any long-term benefit. So, you know, for some patients, getting two or three months of benefit is worth, you know, worth it if uh, they can get even that short duration of benefit. I think, I think it's funny that that, I think it's the same trial. That was the cartilage loss one. 
Yes. There, yeah, yeah, it was so, like 0.2 millimeters cartilage loss versus 0.1 millimeter cartilage loss. And it's like, clinically, no one knows if that even matters or not. Exactly, exactly. It was like a less than a voxel on the MRI of a difference. And, um, you know, for that rate of cartilage loss over several years, when you start off with, for example, four or five millimeters of cartilage, um, when you don't have anything else to offer an individual that, you know, and, and again, we don't know what the clinical significance of that is. So I think the jury is still out about how worried we should be about that. But I do think it highlights that, um, we shouldn't be doing injections too frequently and, um, that, you know, some of these, uh, approaches that we use that have been, um, you know, decades old approaches that we still have more to learn about, uh, all the effects. Beth, we we had more questions from social about injections. Yeah, I mean, there was like general questions kind of about the uh, glucocorticoid injections. And then there was one person who asked about hyaluronic acid injections as a pain relief. Yeah. 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 So, um, yeah, I was about to go down that road as well. I think this is one of the most controversial uh, topics in osteoarthritis management. Um, There are a lot of trials that show benefit. Um, but in meta-analyses where they've looked at industry sponsorship of trials and um, limited analyses to studies with low risk of bias, the um, efficacy is small. In fact, one meta-analysis where they limited it to non-industry sponsored trials that were um, that had low risk of bias, the um, effect size was close to null. Having said that... Um, you know, the ORSI treatment guidelines that were recently published did did, in, did acknowledge that, the, that um, intra-articular hyaluronic acid injections are, you know, unclear benefit, but that in individual individuals with comorbidities where, you know, other uh, therapies might not be effect, uh, appropriate, that you might consider hyaluronic, hyaluronic acid injections. And for those patients who are really end-stage disease and the next step is joint replacement, but they're not a good candidate, this might be something that you try in those patients. So it's not a, a great answer as to um, uh, whether or not one should use hyaluronic acid. I think it just reflects the, um, you know, the challenges in the data. I just wanted to kind of recap injections in general with corticosteroids, the cartilage loss thing, jury's still out, but it, it's, you know, it, it wasn't so worrisome that we should stop those altogether. It, it seems like the long-term benefit of those is uncertain, but maybe in the short term, like the first three months or so, maybe that's when patients might, if they're going to have benefit, they might see benefit. And I was reading that maybe patients with like the most severe disease might, or most severe or evidence of inflammation, they might actually benefit from them. Is there any way to select those patients other than that? Um, yeah. So, you know, it's, it's been, um, that the the presence of inflammation as evidenced by effusion or synovitis and ultrasound for example many many rheumatologists do um, bedside musculoskeletal ultrasound it was thought that those people would be the ones that would be most likely to respond um, the JAMA trial that we were just mentioning, they did select individuals based on presence of effusion or synovitis and ultrasound. Um, they didn't find any long-term benefit, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you might that they might be more likely to have short-term benefit. There is now a long-acting intraarticular steroid 
uh, formulation available. Um, but at least as of this present um, data that's available, um, published, it seems to be similar to the regular formulation that's available. Um, it's one benefit is that it has less of a blood glucose effect than um, the typical formulations of intraarticular steroids. Before we get into some of the more non-traditional modalities, I, I had a couple of specific questions, if you don't mind. I, I know the the 2012 ACR recommendations talk about occupational therapy for hand OA, which is it makes perfect sense. I don't think I've ever made that referral. Are there or who's the appropriate patient for that, and how often does that happen in practicality? Right. So, um, you know, I think part of the challenge there is that there haven't been enough studies of occupational therapy for hand osteoarthritis in contrast to a number of well-conducted studies for physical therapy for knee or hip osteoarthritis. So types of things that um, occupational therapists do include um, sort of specific um, hand exercises, paraffin therapy, um, certain, um, like for, for example, certain orthotics, like for, for CMC joint, um, so or, um, they also do some kinesio taping. So there's a, a number of modalities that an occupational therapist can do. Um, it just, I, I think it, it highlights a research agenda where there's a, a gap in high quality trials to really make strong recommendations. And the other question I had in terms of NSAID selection, I don't, I don't think the guidelines get too specific as to what to choose, but I guess, do you personally have a preferred NSAID that you like to use? The first step would be to consider which joints are affected and how many joints are affected. If it's one or two joints or just a few joints that might be amenable to topical therapy, that would be the first-line choice over using systemic therapy. So, for example, uh, if it's uh, one or two knee joints or a few hand joints, then topical therapy would be preferred. The hip joints are not amenable to topical therapy. The two main topical therapy options are topical NSAIDs and topical capsaicin. Topical NSAIDs can be used in individuals who otherwise have contraindications to systemic NSAIDs since there is very little systemic absorption. But when there are more joints involved, um, or more persistent, uh, more persistent symptoms that are otherwise not amenable to or not responsive to uh, these first line options. Then one, one might consider topical, excuse me, uh, systemic therapy, such as with oral NSAIDs. When it comes to oral NSAIDs, ibuprofen and naproxen are the most commonly used NSAIDs. There are no real good head-to-head -head trials to give us direction as to which NSAID is the most efficacious. But a recent meta-analysis uh, from The Lancet a, a couple of years ago now demonstrated that diclofenac had a worse safety profile than other NSAIDs, and therefore diclofenac should be considered as a non-preferred uh, NSAID in the management of osteoarthritis. As for other options, uh, celecoxib was shown in a trial a couple of years ago to have a favorable safety profile and therefore can also be considered. Overall, I think the choice of NSAID has to take into account cardiovascular, GI, and renal uh, issues, safety issues, as well as uh, patient's prior response to an NSAID uh, and convenience of uh, dosing. Some patients don't take an adequate dose or don't take the medication at the appropriate frequency, and therefore NSAID failures may not be necessarily a reflection of the NSAID itself not working properly for the patient, but rather that the patient 
was not taking the dose in an effective manner. Um, and patients also need to be educated about other over-the-counter agents that may also contain NSAIDs so that they're not un accidentally doubling up on NSAIDs and increasing their risk of adverse effects from NSAIDs. Thank you. Are you using much much of the SNRIs like duloxetine? It seemed like that might have some evidence behind it, at least modest modest benefit. Yeah, so there was an actual um, trial done in osteoarthritis with duloxetine, and it was positive. Um, it was a small trial, and there were some uh, you know concerns about it. But I think one of the clinical challenges with duloxetine is tolerability. But certainly, if I think that someone has um, depressive symptoms, sleep issues, widespread pain issues, those might be the individuals where I think about using something like duloxetine. Okay, Beth, you want to take us down the rabbit hole and see uh, what 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 did some of our the our Twitter listeners? I, I thought I saw something some some weird questions on there. Well, we had a lot of interest about um, some some alternative therapies that people might be using or could be using related to CBD. You know, whether in an oil form that's applied to the joint or sort of taking. Uh, edible items that have CBD. Uh, There's a few questions about using marijuana as well, and also turmeric. So we just wanted to sort of get your take on some of these these ideas. Sure. So CBD and the like, uh, marijuana, etc., has been a strong uh, area of interest in pain research, um, and including studies in uh, animal models for osteoarthritis and in humans. And the um, CBD1, CBD2 receptor studies that I can think of, um, and I won't try to remember all the different enzyme names like FAH or something like that, um, those trials have not been positive in OA. And I think there's still a lot to understand and learn about CBD products. And so while it might make sense to a certain, you know, to a certain degree, um, pathophysiologically, um, I think a lot more study needs to be uh, done. Other things like turmeric. Um, so turmeric does actually bind to a receptor on to like a, a, a binds to nociceptors. And so there's a theoretical reason why that might be beneficial and supposed to have some anti-inflammatory effects. Um, but what dose, how often, you know, all those things are unclear. Um, you know, there's some cultures where they will um, rub uh, turmeric in mustard oil on their joint um, which is a messy, smelly affair. Um, but, um, you know, for someone, you know, some of your listeners who think that their patient might want to go out to the health food store and get some supplements, it's really unclear what uh, dose, if it works, you know, trials have not been done well. And as you know, supplements um, are not well regulated, so you don't even know how much you're really getting. I would say some other... Um, uh, therapies that have shown a little more promise and maybe not to the point yet where they're, um, you know, proven in trials, but, um, fish oil, omega-3 fatty acids, that has some promise. Um, the issue is that people need to take a much higher dose to get an anti-inflammatory effect than, uh, you might otherwise normally take, but there's been a few promising, suggestive signals in a few different um, studies, including um, 
other arthritis conditions like rheumatoid arthritis. The glucosamine chondroitin story, I've seen lots of negative trials. I saw, I think there was a chondroitin sulfate trial. It was like 800 mil. It was like a pharmacologic grade chondroitin sulfate. and, And they showed maybe there was benefit, but everything else I've seen about glucosamine chondroitin has just been like, doesn't work. Do you, what do you tell patients when they ask you? Yeah. So um, again, just going back to the evidence, similar to the hyaluronic acid story, there are lots of positive trials, but when meta-analyses are performed um, and they're limited to non-industry sponsored trials, the effect sizes are quite small and close to the null. Um, there, the glucosamine sulfate is a um, sort of proprietary brand um, made by a particular company, and but glucosamine hydrochloride has been studied in uh, non-industry trials. There's no reason once glucosamine sulfate or glucosamine hydrochloride gets into your stomach and is metabolized that they should behave any differently. You know, the salt associates and um, so the well-conducted low bias trials really show no efficacy. And an NIH trial, the GATE trial years ago, demonstrated that you know there was no um, benefit. Chondroitin, there was a trial recently in hand osteoarthritis that seems to be well conducted and that there was a positive benefit on symptoms. So you know, may, so maybe there is something there, but um, at least for knee and hip uh, and for glucosamine, there hasn't been enough uh, convincing evidence from non-industry sponsored trials of low bias. Was that so over-the-counter chondroitin in that hand trial, or was it like a pharmacologic grade? It was, from what I remember, it was a pharmaceutical-grade chondroitin. Mm-hmm. But what I do say to patients when they ask me is the you know biggest side effect is on your wallet. So if you want to <laughs> try it, and then again, sort of the philosophy of harnessing the placebo effect, like if they have some benefit from it um, and there's low side effects, um, it may not be harmful, but it's certainly not something I encourage. Um, you know, the same. You know, the same could be said about, for example, acupuncture, where there's a lot of controversy about its efficacy. Um, trials are really challenging to interpret because you don't know how adequate the sham control is. Um, but again, um, we at least, as long as people are using sterilized needles, we don't know of any adverse effects of acupuncture and uh, so other than cost or insurance coverage, et cetera. So if someone wants to try it, I don't discourage it. And where do things like yoga and Tai Chi fall in the the evidence spectrum? Yeah. So um, Tai Chi has actually had some randomized trials in fibromyalgia and osteoarthritis and has been demonstrated to be efficacious. Now, some could quibble about whether the control group was adequate, but I think uh, for things like Tai Chi, yoga, those mind-body practices where there's really little downside, um, as long as they're done safely and the instructor is well-trained and they, for example, someone with hip OA has to be careful about certain yoga positions, et cetera, um, there's no downside to it. Um, similarly, meditation. I um, recommend meditation all the time to my patients. I might not 
sell it as meditation. I, um, you know, I think in Western culture, it's more acceptable these days to talk about mindfulness and uh, mindfulness-based stress reduction. So the American College of Physicians um, Management of Low Back Pain recommends mindfulness-based stress reduction. There's no reason to think that the trials of MBSR in back pain should be any different for any other pain condition. And that could help our patients with sleep, depressive symptoms, anxiety, catastrophizing, coping skills, etc. There are lots of free apps. Um, and my patients who have been doing this mindfulness stuff, they're it's really funny, like just their personality um, improves when you see them next. Um, so again, I, um, I can't say that there have been definitive trials in osteoarthritis, but when we are struggling with offering something to our patients, I do try to look for these types of things that would have little downside and potential benefit. Is there a specific mindfulness app that you like or recommend for your patients? Well, um, for patients that um, uh, are, can afford to uh, pay for a subscription, Headspace um, has some good programs. A free app that... Um, my colleague who does research in mindfulness-based stress reduction and has used in her trials is Insight Timer, I-N-S-I-G-H-T. And that has a, a number of programs and it's free. Yeah, I've used both. They're both they're both great. The the um, Headspace, I think the first 10, it has 10 free sessions on there that you can get. It kind of teaches you how to do it. It's It's definitely useful. I think it took me about two years of not actually doing it before I canceled my subscription. That's why <laughs> so I'm looking for free resources now. So that's I helpful. I think there's Thank at you. least one medical group that if you're a member of it too, if you're like a physician or medical student, you can get free access to Headspace. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's good. And some know. institutions have it as an employee benefit. Excellent. We, uh, we're going to, we busted our, our time here with you. So I want to, I, we got to let you go at some point, get on with your night. And I wanted to just ask for, uh, some take home points. If you wanted to just, um, you know, can I, sorry, can I just, sorry, can I, I would like to just give some hope and just briefly mention that there are some new targets that are out there. And I know we kind of briefly mentioned this, but, um, I would like to just, sort of end with some like something hopeful and the sort of most promising one was sort of what we talked about in the beginning these anti-nerve growth factors that i think will really revolutionize pain management all right fantastic they they can't come soon enough can you give the audience uh since we've taken so much of your time can you give the audience some of your take-home points and then we'll let you go uh I, i'm sure you're sick of our questions by now <laughs> no, not at all. Um, so I think um, when examining or, you know, when faced with a patient who has some musculoskeletal pain complaints, um, just, you know, bear in mind that joint pain and musculoskeletal pain are the number one reason why people are coming to see their physicians. And not all of those complaints are an arthritis. So really try to understand where in the body the pain is occurring and if there are no concerning signs for an inflammatory arthritis or systemic autoimmune disease, um, and if the story is consistent with osteoarthritis, then the first steps would be um, management with um, advice regarding a walking program, weight loss, helping the patient maybe get into weight and nutrition management, sending to physical therapy. Um, physicians really underutilize physical therapy, and they really are first-line management uh, partners in in managing osteoarthritis. And did you have anything that you would like to plug to the audience before we sign off here? 
Oh, man. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, so stay tuned for the uh, ACR osteoarthritis treatment guidelines. Also stay tuned for the ACR gout treatment guidelines, which I'm also leading. Um, and uh, check me out on Twitter. See what I have to say. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, yeah, I can't wait. I can't wait for the all these guidelines that you're going to be. Uh, we'll have to, maybe we can just, uh, we'll, we'll have to figure something out. So when they come out, are they going to, you think they'll come out in 2020? Yes. Okay. So when uh, when when they come out, you know, send us an email and we, we can figure something out. We can uh, have you back on and do like a, a 2.0, gout 2.0 and osteoarthritis 2.0. We could talk about. Um, some, you know, whatever loose ends need to be tied up from, from both of those episodes. Sounds good. This has been another episode of the Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. <laughs> Strong work. <laughs> Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. We're committed to providing you with high-value, practice-changing knowledge, and to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes, or contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com, or reach out on Facebook, Instagram, or on Twitter at thecurbsiders. Um, I weirdly now have to thank myself, Beth Garbs Garbatelli, um, and also uh, a big thanks to our social media team. Hannah R. Abrams runs our Twitter um, Chris Chu Manchu is on Facebook, and I'm running the Instagram. Um, until next time, I've been Stuart Brigham. <laughs> oh, poor Stuart, not here tonight. Uh, I've been Matthew Frank Watto. <laughs> and I remain Dr. Paul Nelson Williams. Thank you, and goodbye. And I think Beth didn't really sign off, but that's okay. <laughs> I wish to God we could leave that in. Uh.